If you're able, you remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 22 through 33. And this is going to be our text for the next two weeks as well. Ephesians 5, starting verse 22. This is the word of our Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Our glorious God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see glorious things concerning you, concerning Christ, concerning your spirit, concerning your church, concerning us. From your word this morning, for asking Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As we, as we read this passage, we may think that the Holy Spirit is using marriage to illustrate illustrate Christ's relationship to the church and the church relationships to Christ as a side note. Sometimes we may think that the Holy Spirit was in heaven thinking, how do I illustrate Christ's love for His church? What should I use for that? Oh, I know! How about marriage? That's not how quite Christ pictured it. Marriage, from the very beginning, was created to exemplify, to illustrate the relationship between Christ and His church. It is an original purpose of marriage to demonstrate to the world Christ's love for His church and the church's love for her master. And that is why any distortion of marriage is so serious. Be it by denying what the scriptures say concerning marriage, like in gay marriage or in any sort of arrangement to which you have more than a biological-born male and a biological-born female getting together in marriage and becoming one body. Anything like that is a serious thing because it is saying a lie about Christ's love for His church and His church's love for Him. It's also a serious thing when people who say they do believe what the Bible says concerning marriage don't practice it. They're also saying a lie about Christ's relationship to 
his church. So this is a very important matter because marriage points out to Christ. And marriage is always saying something about Christ and his church. Is either saying something that's true or saying something that is a, a lie. Today I'm going, I want to do something that uh, I don't think you've ever heard me ask you to do before. I want you to disregard the main point of the passage. Now, maybe the only time you're going to hear me say that. Because today I want to somewhat remove the husband and the wife out of the equation of this passage, which is the main point of the passage. And I want us to look at the illustration that Paul gives us concerning marriage. That is, Christ's love for his church. And then his church love back for him. And I want us to see here in this passage, this, this glorious description of the ministry of Christ to his church. So that, uh, this is our goal to, for this morning, for us to look at Christ and to see how he loves his church, and to see how he loves the individuals in his church and how we are to respond to that love. Because to see Christ is what we need. We, I, I, I firmly believe that we are entering into a period in the history of this country, that things are going to become very, very difficult to, for the Church of Jesus Christ. If the first 10 days of executive orders is any indication where things are going, pretty soon what we're doing here today is going to be a high crime. Preaching the Bible, if the executive orders are followed to its logical conclusion, will become a heinous hate crime in the sight of the state. And if we are not enamored with Christ, if we are not clinging to Christ, we are, we, the church will not, at least in this state perhaps, in this country, will not thrive. But in God's good providence throughout history, it is in time of intense persecution that the church of Jesus Christ will thrive and grow. Even as Tertullian is purported to have said in the 2nd and 3rd century that it is the blood of the martyrs so the, is the seed of the church. I, I, I'm a bit of a coward. I'd prefer that we prospered through prosperity. <laughs> but if you're going to prosper through difficulties, it's going, going to be because we are focused on Jesus Christ and that we are desiring to see Him and we want to be more like Him. So let me, let me start by just enumerating all the things that this pastor says about Christ and his relationship to the church. And then we're going to take each one of them, we're going to look at them separately, and that's going to prepare us to look at the, at the role of the husband next Lord's Day. And if you thought that you know, God expected a lot of the wives two weeks ago, just you wait, Mr. Higgins. Next week is going to be uh, uh, even a little more uh, difficult. And it will actually hopefully drive us to our knees because apart from Christ, there's no way that you and I as men can do what Christ commands us to do here. But look at what the pastor says concerning Christ. It tells us that Christ is the head of the church in verse 23 also says that Christ is the Savior of the body, again in verse 23. It tells us that Christ loved 
the church in verse 25. It tells us that Christ gave himself for the church in verse 25. And by giving himself for the church, he does a few things. It says that by giving himself, he sanctifies and he cleanses and he presents the church as glorious to himself. And he says that Christ nourishes and cherishes his church. Aren't these just wonderful and glorious truths that uh, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us about the Savior? And now that we have kind of pulled out all the things that our passage says concerning Christ's relationship to the church and the churches to Christ, let's take a look at each one of them individually, starting by looking at the fact that Christ is the head of the church in verse 23. Now, the word head can have quite a few meanings besides the literal meaning of this thing that's connected to our bodies by our neck. Uh, and the word head in English can be used in several different ways as well. You can talk about an issue coming to a head, right? A reference to a boil coming to a head uh, and all different ways. But in this passage, uh, the scholars put themselves in two different groups. There's a group here that believes that there's no different roles for husband and wife, that the roles are egalitarian, that the, the Bible doesn't make any difference between being a male or a female as far as roles in the church and society and so on. And they interpret the word head as meaning just the source. The head, Christ is the head of the church the same way that the spring is the head of the river. It just as all it means that Christ is the source of the church, that the church emanates from Christ. And there's truth in that. Romans 11.36 says that all things are of Him or from, from Him. So there's some truth to that. But I don't think that's how it is used here. The other group of people interpret this. It, it, it will be over here. So these will be egalitarian as far as rule, roles of male and female in the church. The complementarians over here that says that the, the roles are different, but they complement each other. That we need both men and women to have the, the whole thing. And that God gave men one role and women another role. And they together complement. So they're complementarian. See this passage and interpret them in the way that I think is correct. And it's looking at the word head to mean authority. That Christ is the authoritative ruler of the church. The, the reason why I think this is the correct way of looking at the word head is because in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul used the same word in that way when Paul says that he, the Father, put all things under his feet, that is Christ's feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. And you can see that having everything put under your feet and being the head are parallel. They mean the same thing. And to have things put under your feet means for you to exercise dominion over those things. These are conquered foes that are under your feet and now you have dominion over them. That's what it means to be the head. And, and here in, in Ephesians, Paul is re referencing back to Psalm 110, where there... The father says to his son that he is going to put all things under his feet and he's going to be the head there. So being the head of the church means that Jesus has all authority over her. Jesus is the boss, really is what it means. Remember when Peter preached his Pentecostal sermon and the people in Acts chapter 2, and the people responded and asked Man and brother, what must we do to be saved? 
Remember what the answer was that Peter gave them? Wasn't simply believe in Jesus. Was believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Being Lord is what it means to be the head. Being Lord is what it means to have authority. And Christ declared at the end of the Gospel of Matthew that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. The Bible says the government of God's people has been placed, was placed on the Messiah's shoulder. Remember the famous Christmas uh, verse uh, made even more famous by Handel's Messiah, Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government, the government will be upon his shoulder. What, is, what does it mean to have the government upon his shoulder? Is the idea that the mantle of government, the signal of government, the official robe of the governor has been placed upon him. And that happened at his resurrection. But remember how the verse continues? Four titles are given to him. Uh, the, the, the King James separates into five, right? Because separates wonderful and counselor. They should be together. But he's called, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What, these, what do these four titles have in common? They're all titles of authority. These are titles that the one bearing that title can get to tell people what to do. And because Jesus, Jesus has been appointed head of the church, the church submits to him. In verse 24, it tells us that, that the church submits to her head, the Lord Jesus Christ. She doesn't do her own thing. She only does what her, her, her head tells her to do. And we're okay with that. We're okay with talking about the church in the abstract and that she's supposed to be submitted, submissive to Christ and that Christ is her head. But the church doesn't exist apart from us. The individuals, the people in the church. And since the church doesn't exist apart from her individual members, the obedience to her head filters down to the individuals as well. So Christ is not just the head of the church in general, but He is your head if you're a believer. He is your master. He is your authoritative ruler. And what He says must go in your life. And that's simply what it means to be the head, is to be the Lord, to be the master, to be the boss. And there is no other head. There is no other head for the church of Jesus Christ. Our confession in chapter 25, verse 6, says the Lord Jesus Christ is the only head of the church, and the claim of any man to be the vicar of Christ and the head of the church is unscriptural, without warrant in fact, and is a usurpation dishonoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other head of the church except Jesus Christ. If someone claims to be the head of the church, they are a child of Satan. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And as the head, he gives gifts to the church, as you saw in chapter 4, verse 11, and he has appointed a government to rule his church under him. In 1 Peter 5, Peter is addressing the church and he turns to the elders of the church. It's interesting that he doesn't address them as apostle. He could have said, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, do what I tell you. But he doesn't. He says, I, I approach you as the elder. And he was old at the time, but he doesn't mean elder there just as 
uh, a reflection of his age, but of his office. And in 1 Peter 5, it says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Peter says, God has appointed elders to shepherd and to oversee. That's the government that the head has appointed. But that government doesn't rule apart from Jesus Christ. They are under shepherds that work under the great shepherd of the sheep to declare what he says in his word. So Christ is the head of the church. Christ is your head believer. He is your Lord. And there is no other but him. The Apostle Paul also tells us in verse 23 that Christ is the Savior of the body. It is important for us to notice how important the church is to Paul, or better yet, how important the church is to Christ. We tend to focus on the individual, right? We live in the West of the United States. It was the rugged individuality of the frontiersman that got this place going. It was the, the, the idea that every person could put them, pull themselves up by own, the, their own bootstraps that got the westward expansion going. And we're proud of the American dream. And these are, could be good things. But often, Christ speaks of His church. Granted, the church is made by us, individuals. But there's this idea of this collective people. He loved His church. And we have to also love His church. And Paul is emphasizing how Christ saves the church of Jesus Christ. That's made very clear in 1 Corinthians 12, that though made of many members, it's one body, and Christ loved His body, as it says in verse 30 here of our passage. There's only one Savior, and that Savior saves His body, the church. And there's no salvation outside of the church. There is no such thing, thing, there's no such category in the Bible as being saved by Christ and be outside of the visible church. And the visible church does not exist apart from its particular manifestation in the local churches. A person says, oh, I'm just... I'm a member of the church, uh, the, the church universal. I don't need the local church. They're, that person is not thinking biblically. Because Christ is the Savior of the body, and the body is His church. And there's no salvation outside of His church. It is in His church that we find salvation. And we don't like that language because the Roman Catholic Church has used that language so poorly and so wrongly. That we think that that's not true. But that's who the Christ came to save. He came to save His body, His church. So don't buy into the idea that, uh, oh, I can be a faithful servant of Christ and yet not be attached to any physical representation of that church. If you say that, you're, saying, you're being like the teacher says, I love teaching, I just don't like the students. That, that, that's a similar statement uh, of, for, for somebody who says, I love Christ, but I just don't want to be part of His church. That is not uh, uh, a biblically possible statement. So Christ is our head. He's the Savior of the body. And as Paul says in verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. Have you ever noticed that Paul says that Christ loved, in the past tense, the church? 
He doesn't say that Christ loves the church, though that's true. We can see that from other passages. But in this passage, it says that he loved the church in the past, and this past tense seems to point to a loving action in the past. What is that loving action? Well, I think the most famous verse in the Bible will help us understand what that loving action is. John 3.16 For God so, in this manner, loved the world. How? That He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved the world in this manner. He gave His most precious thing to the world, His unique Son. Thus, the loving action in the church, the loving action in the past for the church is Christ giving Himself for the church. And notice that He didn't give Himself to the church, though that's true as well. But our pastor says He gave Himself for, that is, on behalf of the church. He gave Himself in the place of the church. His love for the church is demonstrated in His living a perfect life in her place and for and for bearing the sins of His church upon the cross. It's, it's sometimes we doubt that God is good. We doubt that God is love and that He loves us because of whatever we're going through in life. But the ultimate demonstration of His love for us is not how easy our life is, but the fact that Christ hanged on the, hanged on the cross for your sins. And that doesn't change. It doesn't matter what you're going through. That doesn't change. And that's how Christ loved and continues to love His church. God demonstrates His love towards you. That while you're still sinners, Christ died for you. And Christ gave Himself for the church to accomplish certain things. Look at verses 26 and 27. That he might, he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ gave himself for the church in order to sanctify and cleanse the church. This is a reflection of the ceremonial law uh, for, for things that were going to be used for the Lord. The idea of cleansing, uh, Paul's not interested in sanitizing things. He's not talking about using alcohol to clean things or, you know, whatever things you need to do to get the place sterile. That's not the idea of cleansing. The idea is referring back to the Old Testament law where things were cleansed in order to be used for a particular purpose. It didn't mean that there was no dirt on them. It didn't mean that they were sterile, but that they were being set aside to be used for something. It's interesting that in verse 27, the original language actually says that he might sanctify her having cleansed her. She was cleansed, the church, and then now she's ready to be sanctified, to be changed, to, be, to grow, to become more like Jesus Christ. And he does that here, says, by washing, the washing of water. Why do you think it would be the first thing who come to a first century audience when they heard Paul saying that Christ cleanses the church by the washing of water. It would be the waters of baptism. That would accomplished by sprinkling, by the way. That's what would be uh, accomplished there in the Old Testament. Again, when a temple utensil was cleansed by water, nothing really happened to it. It was just signified that that now is holy, is set apart to be used by the Lord. 
the waters of baptism signify this cleansing and setting the church apart for Jesus Christ. And if you notice, we have these hanging words at the, at the end, by the word. And they should be understood with the word sanctified in our passage. Remember when Jesus is praying for you, for me, in John 17, and he says, sanctify them by your truth, or by your word. Your word is truth. And God is sanctifying us, is demonstrating, is accomplishing these things as a result of his love, by giving us his word, both the written word and in the preached word. And he doesn't stop that. He gave himself for the church in order to, in verse 27, to present her a glorious church to himself. Christ is playing the long-term game with the church. He's not just concerned about tomorrow, but he's looking at the thousand generations in the future, and he wants his church to persevere. He gave himself so that he can present her to himself at his journey. And she will be glorious. You and I are going to be glorious in the sight of our Savior. Can you imagine? You and I. We're going to be glorious in the sight of our Savior. I love doing weddings, mostly because I love watching the groom. As, as the bride comes down the aisle, I, I prefer looking at the bride through his eyes. I remember looking at Jacob as Maddie's coming down the aisle, which is just the most recent wedding that I've been involved with. And how his eyes, were just, they came alive. And you can see the, just the sparkles in his eyes. And he looks at his glorious bride coming down the aisle. That's going to be the eyes of our Lord when he comes back. And he looks at us. For we will be glorious. And look at how Paul defines the word glorious. He says, he defines it in two ways. Glorious in the negative and glorious in the positive. He says, glorious, defined negatively, he says, without any spot, without any wrinkle, without any of the like. And defined positively, he says, holy and blameless. Do you notice what's missing in that definition of glorious? Any notion of success. The church is going to be glorious because it converted the world. Oh, the church is going to be glorious because it was super relevant to the times it existed. Oh, the church is glorious because it was really big. None of that is in the definition of glorious. There's one thing, if you notice, that's in that definition. The church is glorious because it is holy. Holiness is the definition of a glorious church. Do you notice that your happiness is not part of the definition of glorious? Though if, if we learn to like what the Lord likes, we're going to be happy. But it's our holiness that's a display of His love for us. You know, the receiving of the spotless church is depicted in the book of Revelation. Chapter 19, when you read about the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, and the church is described as having white linen on as, as the righteous acts of the saints, and Christ comes back to receive her in all His glory, and we will see Him as He is, for we shall be like Him. And then the last thing I want us to see in our passage is that Christ not only loved the church, and gave himself for her, he continues to minister to us. He, and that ministry is described as his nourishing and cherishing the church. Look at verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. The, the Lord nourishes his church. To nourish is to provide food that is good for you. 
Food that you need to grow. And notice that uh, it's food that you need, not necessarily food that you desire. Those can be two different things. But the more we grow in the Lord, the more we desire the very food that God wants us to do. But there's more to nourishing. It's not only to feed you what you need, but also to cause you to grow for as long as it takes. People of God, the Christ, Christ gives His church all that she needs. We don't need to look for it somewhere else. Christ gives us that. And He gives us that by giving us His Spirit. He gives us that. He nourishes us by, by giving us His Word, by the reading of His Word, and especially the preaching of His Word. When Paul was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, the last thing he's going to say to them, knowing that he's never going to see them again, and he's thinking, how can I encourage the Ephesian elders? How can I encourage the... Ephesian church, he says this, he says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. God nourishes His church through the foolishness of the message preached. God nourishes His church through a book, the best book, the perfect book, the complete book. But he also nourishes his church by the Lord's Supper as he conveys grace to us and renews his covenant with us, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. The Lord's Day itself is the way that God nourishes us as his church, as we worship him and take a break from our usual activities. He nourishes us by giving us prayer. An old Puritan said that the very act of praying is a mercy from the Lord. Even if we never heard an answered prayer, just the ability to bring our requests before the throne of God, that alone is grace. For us. The fellowship of the saints. He nourishes us through one another. He nourishes us through by the collective wisdom of the church through the centuries. Books that have been written by by people that have gone before us nourish us. Podcasts, whatever. Christ is nourishing his church. But he only just nourishes. You know, somebody can nourish somebody else and can be good for them, but do it begrudgingly. Christ doesn't do that. He only not only nourishes us. But He cherishes us. Can you believe that you and I are precious to Him? Can you believe that He actually cares from His heart for us? That's not just something that He does out of duty, but out of a desire for fellowship with you, with me. He takes care of His church. And that's why he, He said, I will build my church, not even the gates of hell will prevail against her. He intercedes for us. He protects us. Christ loves His church. And His church loves Him. He's working in her to prepare her for the day in which the church will see Him face to face. That's what's happening to us right now. We are being prepared to meet our Savior. We're being prepared to meet meet our head our Master, our Lord. And that's where we're going. That's where we're going, is to that wedding feast, to that wedding ceremony, where He receives us face to face. As I was preparing this sermon, a song kept on playing in my head, a song by Michael Bleeker, that says, Living, He loved me, dying, He saved me, buried, He carried my sins far away, rising, He's justified freely forever. One day He's coming, you know how it goes? 
O glorious day. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the day that you see your Savior face to face, the one who loved you by giving himself for you, that it's going to be a glorious day? That's the only way that we're going to get through this life, is by looking to that. The day in which we're going to see our Savior face to face. O glorious day. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us Christ. We thank you for his love for us. We pray that we'll be able to respond by your grace, by loving him and submitting to him with all of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.